You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine. Your moderator for this discussion is Dr. Atul Gawande, staff surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and associate professor at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. In 1977, Oklahoma became the first state to adopt lethal injection as a method of carrying out the death penalty in the belief that it would be more humane than electrocution. The design of the original protocol for the procedure was written quickly without any prior study by A.J. Chapman, Oklahoma's chief medical examiner at the time, and Chapman's approach became the de facto standard as other states followed Oklahoma in switching to the new method. That method and the attempt it represents to medicalize execution in order to make it more morally acceptable have led to ongoing tensions between the legal community and the medical community over whether physicians and other healthcare professionals should be involved in the process of putting convicted criminals to death. On January 7, 2008, the U.S. Supreme Court heard oral arguments in Bayes v. Rees, the case of two Kentucky death row inmates who argue that the current three-drug lethal injection protocol violates the Constitution's Eighth Amendment guarantees against cruel and unusual punishment. With me today to discuss this important case and its implications for the healthcare community, we have Professor Deborah Denno, Arthur A. McGivney Professor of Law at Fordham University School of Law, and an expert on death penalty law, Dr. Bob Trude, Professor of Medical Ethics, Anesthesiology, and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School, and also a co-author of a brief to the U.S. Supreme Court arguing that the lethal injection protocol as currently constituted does violate the ban on cruel and unusual punishment. And we also have Dr. David Wiesel, Associate Professor of Anesthesiology at Harvard Medical School, and also the author of a much-discussed article arguing that physicians should be involved in executions in order to relieve suffering. Thank you for joining today. I want to start with you, Professor Denno. Now, as I understand it, the case of Bayes versus Rees um, doesn't ask if the death penalty is unconstitutional. It doesn't ask whether lethal injection is unconstitutional in general. It asks only whether the specific formula used in the state of Kentucky is unconstitutional. So the puzzle of it, to me as a doctor and to plenty of people who are not lawyers, is what is the big deal about this case? Well, the big deal about this case is immediately when the method was adopted, A.J. Chapman conceded that there were problems with this formula. There certainly have been problems within the 30 years that the formula has been, has been examined and, and used. Uh, and, and now the Supreme Court is confronting that. The biggest problem with the formula is the, is the second chemical, pancrimonium bromide, that is a paralytic agent. There seems to be no real reason for its use. Uh, there's evidence that it paralyzes an inmate, so that inmate is not able to express himself if, in fact, he's, he's suffering from the effects of the other chemicals. So then let me ask a little bit about the formula, Dr. Wiesel. Can you describe that three-drug protocol and, and how it is at least supposed to work? Yes. Um, the three-drug protocol is based at least a great deal on what was considered a normal induction of anesthesia when it was developed. Um, first comes thiopentol, also known as sodium thiopentol or pentothal, which is a barbiturate, 
which is designed to put you to sleep, um, create amnesia um, and anesthesia. Second comes pancreatic bromide, which is designed to paralyze the muscles. And the third drug, which is not a drug used in anesthesia, is potassium chloride, which is designed to rapidly stop the heart. Um, the doses used are massive compared to the doses that would be used in a normal anesthetic induction. You raised, Dr. True, whether these are the right drugs in the first place in your brief. We've taken a pretty strong stand that paralytic agents have no role in end-of-life care. The concern at the end of life is that they can mask the behavioral signs that we look to as to whether or not a patient is comfortable. And we are deeply committed to making sure that patients are comfortable and as free of pain and suffering as possible during the dying process. And since we have medications uh, that do relieve pain, that do sedate uh, perfectly adequately, there's no need to be introducing paralytic agents into end-of-life care. One thing that came up in the course of the oral arguments before the Supreme Court was why do they um, administer pancuronium as part of the protocol? Um, can you explain a little bit about the thought that emerged from their discussion about this, uh, Professor Denno? According to the state, uh, pancuronium bromide is used in order to enhance the dignity of the inmate who's dying because evidence came out that, that without pancuronium there might be some jerking or involuntary movements that would disturb some of the witnesses. So this would enhance the dignity. That I find problematic, and Justice Stevens certainly did. Dr. Trug, is there a medical reason behind it? And has it lasted only just because of this uh until now, unstated role of, of making things look dignified? Well, from the point of view of the inmate, the argument seems bizarre at <laughs> best. Um, you know, imagine saying to the inmate, you have a choice. You can either be assured of a pain-free death and you may have some twitching and grimacing, or we can expose you to the risk of an excruciating death, but we'll make sure that you don't twitch or grimace. I can't imagine that an inmate would actually consider that to be a real choice. So if we're talking about the dignity of the inmate, it's only in the eyes of those who are watching that, uh, and in fact, you know, if that's all you cared about, don't even bother with any of the other drugs, just paralyze the inmate. They will look just as peaceful. Um, so I, I think it's, it's completely specious and uh, has no weight at all. The number one alternative that's been proposed has been a very large dose of a barbiturate. Um, and, you know, I know that there's a number of experts who have said that two or three or five grams of pentothal is absolutely going to be lethal. Um, the fact is that, at least in this country, if there's anyone who's ever had experience with giving a huge dose of pentothal and watching an otherwise healthy person die, I'd be very interested in knowing the circumstances. I mean, the fact is none of us have any experience with this. And my concern is that if you look at a country where they really do have some experience with it, their, uh, their findings are pretty concerning. So if we go to Holland, where euthanasia is legal, and we look at a study from 2000 of 535 cases of euthanasia, I was stunned to see that in 69% of those cases, they used a paralytic agent. Now, what do they know that we haven't figured out yet? I think what they know is that it's actually very difficult to kill someone with just a big dose of a barbiturate. 
And in fact, they report that in 6% of those cases, there was problems with completion, you know, getting the person dead. And in, what was it, uh, I think five of those, the person actually woke up, came back out of coma, you know, despite an intention to give a lethal dose. Professor Denno, um, in turning to this three-drug protocol back in 1977, one of the things you've written is you said the law turned to medicine to rescue the death penalty. What did you mean by that? By virtue of coming up with a method of execution that uh, makes an inmate look serene, comfortable, uh, and sleeping during the death process by virtue of using a paralytic agent, the death penalty in this country was rescued. The humane application of a method of execution was a key goal, and the presence of doctors, their involvement, and the association with medicalizing the procedure enhanced its constitutional acceptability. What does it mean to be not cruel and not unusual punishment? This is what the petitioner was asking the court to do. Please provide us an eighth, some Eighth Amendment guidance so states can know how to judge whether lethal injection is cruel and unusual punishment. So the court is in the position, or at least of, we hope, of answering this question. The Eighth Amendment has never said, nor have the petitioners ever argued, that executions are to be pain-free. The question is whether or not that pain is unnecessary, whether there are alternatives. Chief Justice Roberts asked, do you agree that if the protocol is properly followed, that there is no risk of pain? And the attorney for the prisoners waffled, and I think he waffled because it's a medical question. Um, and so I want to turn to um, both of you, uh, Dr. Weisel, Dr. Trug. Wh- what's your take on the answer? Um, is there no risk of pain with the three-drug protocol if properly followed? Defined properly followed. In other words, the protocols list that this should happen and that should happen. But does that mean that if, it, if, if everything happens correctly, there are no problems with insertion of intravenous catheters, if... Um, there's no problems with mixing up the medications, there's no problem with delivering the medications, then yes, it would be pain-free. I think I, I agree with, uh, with Dave. You know, um, thousands of times every day people are getting anesthetics uh, around this country. Many of them involve the use of paralytic agents. The risk of awareness under anesthesia is very, very small. It does occur, and that's, you know, that's the risk of... Uh, the anesthesia being too light under the cover of a paralytic agent. And that's what, you know, anesthesiologists live in fear of that happening. Unfortunately, it occurs very, very rarely. Um, I think the issue here is that people go to school for a long time and do years of training in order to be able to do this well. And uh, certainly everything that I've read is that uh, the, the adequacy of the training for the people that are doing it in lethal injection is, is, is nowhere near adequate. So there is a practical, empirical question, which is how likely is it that errors will occur with the current process of lethal injection? By one measure, um, there have been 40 clear botched executions out of a little over 900, which suggests a 4 to 5% rate of failure. But then, Dr. Weisel, you started to talk about other problems that occur along the way, starting with uh, drug preparation, where we've seen problems appear perhaps at an even higher rate. What's your sense of how often problems occur and, and what the problems are? We have no idea what the error rate is because there's no oversight, there's no public reporting, so there's no way of knowing 
what's happening where. And, and the information you hear worries me that the processes are less concerned. So, for example, um, I believe the case was from Missouri, in which they pushed the three jugs, and the inmate didn't go to sleep. He was sitting there looking at them. And he realized the strap holding the arm was functioning as a tourniquet, not permitting the drugs to. So they loosened it up. All the drugs came in at once. Now, in that case, I'm highly confident that um, the inmate experienced a great deal of pain from the potassium chloride. And yet, the, I believe it was the sheriff who was quoted saying, eh, no big deal. It's not like he, we hurt the guy or something like that. And, and, and so I, I think that your 4 to 5% number is, is, is dramatically underestimated. Second, I would argue that you know, when we talk about medical error, we also talk about the consequences of if that medical error occurs. We should approach this with the gravest manner possible. And this should be done perfectly. Dr. True, we're talking about you put an IV in, you give some medications. That's a routine kind of procedure that occurs thousands of times a day in any typical hospital across the country. First of all, putting an IV in is not as easy as it may sound. Um, <laughs> and uh, being certain that it continues to remain in the same place also requires actually quite a bit of experience because these these uh, catheters can become dislodged, they can go into the tissue, um, and then they won't work anymore. Furthermore, we know that uh, many of these inmates, uh, by virtue of their past history of drug abuse or obesity or being muscular, uh, can be very difficult to start IVs in. Now, in a hospital setting, um, we have a lot of different ways of approaching the situation when we can't get an IV in or it's going to be difficult. Most commonly, we'll just put in a central venous line. But there again, that requires a great deal of training far beyond anything that would be readily available outside of the medical profession. Um, the mixing, the administration of the medications, routine in any uh, operating room in this country, but far from routine if you haven't done it before. And indeed, one of the uh, mistakes that I know has occurred happened to me as uh, an anesthesiologist early in my training when I injected the paralytic agent too quickly after the pentothal and they precipitated in the tubing. The, the, the tubing turned into a piece of concrete. Suddenly, I had no IV. And, you know, thank goodness I was surrounded by uh, very experienced anesthesiologists who stepped in within moments, had another IV, fixed the problem. And you know, it's never happened to me since. Uh, I learned my lesson. But I, I know that that has happened in executions, and it could be a disaster. We will return to NEJM Audio Perspectives, provided in cooperation with the New England Journal of Medicine after this short break. <laughs> 